I'm a huge fan of Mixapp, ACP's medical knowledge self-assessment program. It provides the latest, most comprehensive educational content needed by internists today. Visit acponline.org forward slash MKSAP18 to learn more about Mixapp18. This week's show is sponsored by Provider Solutions and Development. Their goal is finding the perfect next job for clinicians like you. With a holistic, expert approach to career coaching, they're your personal guide to whatever's next. Find them at psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. That's psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matt. How are you doing? Good. Stuart, you're you're actually letting me get through it these days. <laughs> Damn trying. <laughs> I've learned from my mistakes in the past. So uh, I'm Matt Watto. That's Stuart Brigham. This is The Curbsiders. In a minute here, you'll hear from the great Dr. Paul Williams. On tonight's episode, we talked about hypertension with the great Dr. Juan Penn Vong Pattinson. And on tonight's episode, we talked about hypertension with the great Dr. Juan Penn Vong Pattinson. And... Before we get on to that, I wanted to remind you that you can claim CME for this episode through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org, and that is free for all healthcare professionals. Paul, before we hear about our guests, can you remind people, what is it that we generally do on this show? Matt, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Tonight, we have an amazing conversation with our guest, Dr. Wanpen Vongpadnasan, who teaches us some of her approaches to hypertension, which is something we haven't talked about in a while, and we are well overdue for discussing. With your permission, I'm just going to proceed right to our, our guest credentials, if you don't mind. Permission granted. Yes, go ahead. You don't seem to mind. Great. Thank you. That, that's all I ask. I just A little bit of interaction, guys. Dr. Vongpadnasan serves as the program director of the Hypertension Fellowship Program at UT Southwestern. She also serves as the associate editor of the medical journal Circulation, which perhaps you've heard of. She has published numerous original research articles and scholarly reviews in professional publications, including the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, that fly-by-night organization, Circulation, Hypertension, <laughs> Circulation Research, and the American Journal of Medicine. So suffice it to say, she is well qualified to talk to us and teach us all about her approach to outpatient hypertension. So, Paul, do you know why hypertension is so out of control? I no, I don't. I don't know that. Why is why is that? Because our patients take everything <laughs> we say with a grain of salt. <laughs> Great. Getting better, Stuart. I know. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> Juan Penn, thank you for joining us. We're really excited to talk with you. And the first question we wanted to ask is, tell tell us a little bit about yourself and give us a hobby or interest you have outside of medicine. Uh, I'm a professor of medicine, uh, I'm director of hypertension section and uh, hypertension fellowship uh, at, at UT Southwestern Dallas. Um, uh, I'm a transplant from, I grew up in Thailand, I grew up in Bangkok, so but I did all my training here uh, and I stay on Texas the whole time. So the um, my hobby, I like I like to cook. Uh, I like to learn new recipe. I like to try to uh, 
uh, adapt and improvise, trying to find an ingredient that is not available here and trying to try to uh, see if it will work. Um, and uh, I like to I like to jog and I like to um, I like to do gardening. Um, that's pretty much what I do. Nothing nothing really uh, super exciting, but you know, I enjoy all this. I like how all your hobbies and interests can be continued in the current state of the world, which is, that's good. <laughs> I also remain fascinated with the fact that gardening comes up so often with our guests. It seems to be a hobby of incredibly smart people, which might explain why I, it's not something that I do. Um, I, I <laughs> usually ask for a book recommendation, which I will still cheerfully take, though I have run out of movies to watch too. So if you have a movie recommendation instead, I would take one of those either. So I'll leave it up to you either. A book or movie recommendation does not have to be medical in any way, shape, or form. Oh, um, I I'll go with the with, with the movie. I guess the reason I would be Parasite. I, I enjoy that the most. <laughs> Excellent choice. Yeah. I, yes. What's that about? <laughs> you know, watch it. No, I've never seen. Oh it, wow! No. It's a Korean movie with an Academy Award. Oh really? Yes. I'll, yes. I'll have to watch it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. Uh, I'd like to ask, what's the best advice you've ever received as a learner and something you can impart to our our, our audience? Um, the as a, as a learner, I, I think probably just trying to um, I, I get advice from my senior resident, I guess, when trying to give a lecture, I try to give I try to explain to myself the way I understand before giving to someone else. If I can explain to myself the way I understand, then I can make other people understand it. I guess that's, that's what the best advice I think I got. Excellent. Thank you. Our sponsor is Mixap, ACP's medical knowledge self-assessment program. It's the internal medicine go-to resource for continuous learning and board preparation. I know I always love using Mixap. I'm such a nerd that I actually gain lots of enjoyment by using their questions when I'm preparing for my board exams. You can test yourself with over 3,000 board-like multiple choice questions. I love how you can either use exam mode where you go through the questions in a timed fashion and see the answers afterwards or study mode where you can test yourself and see the response right away. Mixapp Complete is the best value because you get 11 printed sections with digital access, plus Mixapp Complete includes 2,000 digital flashcards, virtual DX with 400 multimedia-based questions to test your visual acumen, and board basics. Mixapp has also just added a really cool new feature. You can highlight text in multiple different colors, and then you can organize that and view your highlights by section. Mixapp is my favorite tool for board preparation, so visit acponline.org forward slash Mixapp18 to sign up today. That's acponline.org forward slash Mixapp18. Because this is a big topic, I think we can move on to the, the, main, the main event here, and I'm going to ask Paul Williams to read a case from Cashlack Memorial. Yeah, I'll read this case. I will say that the second case has just an all-time favorite name I'm very excited about, <laughs> but I, I will go with the first one, too. Um, so, one time we're going to talk about uh, Mr. Theozy Hyde. He is a 67-year-old man who's come to your practice for routine health maintenance examination. The medical assistant takes his blood pressure before the appointment and reports that it is elevated at 142 over 94 millimeters of mercury. Uh, our friend Theo had a heart attack requiring one stent last winter, and he's excited to tell you about some of the lifestyle changes he's made since his last visit. He started to limit his alcohol intake, so no more than two beers on the weekend, which is a decrement for him. He has quit smoking, and he is taking up cycling. 
though he is doing terrific. He even offers to share his recipe for cauliflower rice, which is one of the ways that he has been eating more vegetables. So this is this is our updates and hypertension talk. So before we dig into our management of Mr. Hyde and sort of where to go from here, I wonder if you could just talk us through the very basics. We like to define our terms. Could you just talk to us about what is hypertension um, when we talk about hypertension? Um, uh, hypertension is uh, presence of elevated blood pressure, which is... Um recently de- defined um by the at least by the most recent ACC AHA guidelines uh, to be uh, uh defined as uh, systolic blood pressure of at least 130 millimeter mercury or diastolic of at least uh, 80 millimeter mercury um in um at least from the office in the office setting um uh, i would say that this is at least endorsed by several uh professional society but not all uniformly the American College of Physicians and the uh, Academy of American Family uh, Physician uh, still stay at 140 or 90 as a threshold. So, but at least the, I would say the U.S., most of the uh, majority of U.S. organization, particularly in the high-risk population, uh, there is more movement toward the lower threshold and lower goal. And I think that we, we've talked about this on the show before, Juan Pen, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in addition to the whole lower treatment goals in the sprint trial, there was also, there's just also, I guess, uh, evidence that even prehypertensive patients have worse outcomes if you follow them for long enough. And I, is, isn't that why we're ne- we've tried to lower the treatment threshold to try to just ha- have in general, more people started on medicine to try to prevent, uh, the, this hypertension mediated organ damage is what I'm told it's now called in the literature. <laughs> Yes, yes. So absolutely, that it's it's been shown that the uh, people in in the what we call high normal uh, prehypertension blood pressure, they they don't have they're still at, at risk of cardiovascular events. Um, and um, so the that's that's part of and then with the clinical trial data of the sprint showing even lower target, then you still see a significant benefit in terms of improving cardiovascular outcome. And uh, also the meta analysis show that the um. You know, of course, sprint is not the only trial, but to- with total evidence uh, showing that even the, in, on people who achieve uh, blood pressure in the lower range in various clinical trials, uh, they they still do better than the uh, higher blood pressure. So I think that's that leads to a movement to a, a lower goal, particularly in, in, in the high-risk population. Why don't we take it back to Mr. Theo Z. Hyde? So we t- we've told you he's 67. His blood pressure was 142 over 94. In general now, for our primary care audience, how how are you recommending that, Let's depending on which, let's say we're using a threshold of 130 over 80, how, how are you recommending that people diagnose hypertension? Is it with multiple readings? Do you, do you prefer to have people bring in readings from home? Can you talk about a little bit about the just the logistics of measuring blood pressure and which readings you value most when you're dealing with patients? Sure. So the the uh, the guidelines now um, uh, recommend out of office uh, measurement as as to to actually confirm diagnosis of hypertension and, and to treat and and we have two ways of doing out of office measurement. So you can do either a home home measurement or ambulatory blood pressure. So the um, I I usually try to at least well in our office in in the hypertension clinic we do a very careful 
measurement, um, meaning that we, you know, are following five minutes of rest and using all proper technique. And we, we usually measure it um, more than, we usually measure it three times, actually an average, uh, um, average is second, third, um, and uh, also do both seat and standing blood pressure. Um, and partly, uh, but even with those careful measurements, uh, you know, there's many patients, particularly in older adults, they tend to have white coat, uh, hypertension, white coat effect, uh, or, or vice versa, or having mass hypertension. So you know, doing a home blood pressure measurement is very important. Uh, it's uh, helped them. Uh, I, I think that it, it provides feedback to both the patient and physician to, uh, to treat to the proper goal. Um, and then that in turn also avoid overtreatment uh, of hypertension and avoid you know, side effects associated with, with the, the drug treatment. We, I also do amplitude blood pressure monitoring in, in our clinic. Um, the, the advantage of doing amplitude blood pressure is um, you can do it and you can gauge how much uh, blood pressure at night is, which you cannot do. Although there's some uh, home monitoring now that uh, propose um, they're trying to actually have a home measurement that where you can put it on at night and it will automatically inflate, um, uh, which I'm sure it's coming. Uh, but for, for the time being, you, most of the time you cannot get those kind of data, but you can get more accurate information from, from home or amateur blood pressure monitoring if you uh, do it properly. So um, we, we're trying to, um, trying to get our patient to learn how to do a proper technique, um, particularly now in the setting of covid it makes no sense to particularly for encourage older adults to come to the clinic just to get blood pressure check. Um, so you mentioned in your clinic you're taking multiple readings. Is that an automated that you have the patient sit for five minutes and you do an automated cuff that that takes three readings um, automatically and then you take the average of the second two readings? Is that correct or is it is it someone taking it manually three times? We we no longer do manual blood pressure. Actually, I'm part of the um, committee to improve blood pressure measurement. Um, a part of the problem is the reason we don't do manual anymore is a, you it, you have to find a way to calibrate it, and and the uh, you know we can't use mercury anymore because it's toxic to the environment. Um, so we it's become harder and harder to calibrate. We can say, well, we're going to send it to the company. If you have an older model of automatic devices, the it's harder and harder to find a company to. Uh, calibrate your your device every year, so the um so we're using uh, autom- automatic me- measurement and the also it also eliminate the uh, training on and careful uh, you do manual you have to de- deflate no more than two to three millimeter per second. Imagine I I think that's hardly follow. I mean, you have blood pressure two hundred. Imagine yeah. you take how long does it take to measure blood pressure in these people? <laughs> Uh, multiple times, um, so it's not it's not uh, it's not feasible or practical anymore. Yes, Paul, have you had people say this to you where they're like, "We took a manual, so you know it's so you know it's <laughs> oh, real." Uh, just the gold standard because it involves as much human error as humanly possible. Yeah, it's the one that is, and yes. Okay. So, Juan uh, Pen, I just want to paraphrase for the audience. You're you're essentially saying that. Manual cuffs are, it's hard to keep them calibrated and there is some maybe inherent problems with them. So right as of right now, automated blood pressures are the recommended. If you have it available to you, that's the recommended way to, to have the blood pressure checked. Yes. And okay. now I also emphasize that 
um, the the model of the monitor is important. Um, actually, luckily now, um, even the machine is very expensive in the hospital might not be accurate. And that is a, the body of a organization that validate the machine for hospital or uh, healthcare organization as well as home blood pressure monitors that you can look up. Um, the it's it's uh, developed by AMA and AHA uh, called validatebp.org. Um, so I encourage all the all my patients and even anyone who asks me like what accurate monitors is go to validatebp.org and find it. They have all kinds of monitor, ambulatory blood pressure office or clinic that they can they can select and use from. So it doesn't matter how much you pay for it. It could it could be very inaccurate monitor because it's not uh, well uh, it's not well vetted by our FDA. Um, they're not. In general, is there is there any significant trend versus say wrist versus arm blood pressure cuffs? Because that's a common thing that we see. Yes. Yeah, so the problem with the wrist, uh, and I'm actually I'm um, recently joined the community of validatebp.org as well. Um, the the problem with the the wrist device is that a the the, the validation protocol has not been developed. Uh, it's hard to uh, that's twofold. One is how do you validate it? Actually, if you put the art line. Um, this comes up all the time. When I run the CCU, it comes up all the time. You have a catheter in the wrist, and you have a catheter in the arm, and the wrist will read higher than the arm by like 10, 20 points, and they ask the resident which one is accurate. Um, and then I tell them, actually, it's both of them, because if you have if you have a catheter of simultaneous measurement in the, uh, in the wrist, uh, in the radio brachial and put you can put in carotid or you can put in a central aorta simultaneously we know that the distal the artery uh, the systolic blood pressure will be high compared to to the more proximal location diastolic blood pressure mm-hmm. is pretty much constant throughout the arterial tree but this, that is a phenomenon known as uh, pulse wave amplification just think of it as like when you toss a stone in the ocean and the pulse wave reflected back and, and augment the tie and augment mm-hmm. the, the current. So um and the the more positive amplification, the higher the, the distal artery is. So but what the what what we care for is what is the pressure level of which that the, our target organ is seeing. What is the blood pressure of which our brain, our kidney and our heart muscle is seeing it's more it's more closer to carotid. So I I think that I would Actually, I would trust the brachial blood pressure rather than the wrist mm. blood pressure. Mm. And therefore, people say, well, we can develop any kind of mathematical algorithm to make the wrist blood pressure look like a brachial blood pressure. But I, I have to say that I, I do not believe that there's one equation that make one women, men, Asian, you know, black and white have followed the same equation and say that wrist blood pressure must be equal to the arm blood pressure of this much. Um, that is the the challenge of the wrist monitoring. Not one to thing. mention, sorry, okay. Oh yeah, what were you gonna say? Not to mention. Oh, not to mention that also de- depend on whether you have measurement of when the wrist is pronate or siphonate, it, it could make a difference <laughs> too. Yeah. I Paul, I don't know about you, but I could talk about blood pressure measurement all day. It is just like endlessly deep, uh, something that seems so fundamental. Well, sure. Let's let's make this point. So, because I mean, we're obviously I'm not. I've only done an art line in the clinic just a couple of times. Um, so for the most <laughs> wow. part, we're, we're relying on machines. And, and <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a sick population. 
but but for the most part, it sounds like in your in your in your hypertension clinic, uh, the technique is also sounds like it's good. Like the patients are sitting for five minutes, their back is supported, their arm is is rested, their bladder is empty, they're not talking. So it sounds like in addition to all the the, the fancy pants calibration and using the correct machines, but the, the fundamentals are correct too, which is also probably pretty important when you're actually making a diagnosis and treating. It sounds like I would like to go back if you don't mind while I'm still talking and just clarify some points because I'm I'm the resident dummy of the show, so I, I wonder if. You mentioned um, mass hypertension. You mentioned white coat hypertension. Sort of the benefit of this out of office blood pressure monitoring. If you could just define those terms for us, um, just for the the slower people like myself, that would be helpful. And then maybe we can move forward and talk about how the nighttime readings are also helpful. Sure. So, uh, so white coat hypertension is mean the elevated blood pressure in in the office, but um, normal at home, and and the elevated and normal depends on what guideline you use. So if you you know, AC 2017 ACA, I would say 130 or 80. Um, so that if you have normal less than 130 or 80 in, at home and high in the clinic, that that's white code. But it's reverse, meaning um, uh, elevated blood pressure at home, but normal in the office. Um, that that's mass hypertension. This uh, mass hypertension phenotype um, has, has been associated with uh, close to about twofold increases in cardiovascular events. It's not as high as sustained hypertension, meaning elevated blood pressure, both in the office and at the home. But definitely it's a phenotype that is associated with increased risk uh, and target organ damage. Yeah, so the white coat, uh, most uh, studies show that um, if you're on white coat hypertension while on treatment, the risk of the cardiovascular risk is, is not different than people with control hypertension in, in both you know, at home and in, in, in the office um, because partly because the doctors see it and to try to intensify the treatment to, to control the clinic and which in turn make the, the office uh, the home blood pressure looks better but people who's untreated people with uh, white coat hypertension in the absence of treatment it's it's also shown to have increased risk cardiovascular risk um actually in, in our Dallas heart study uh, we we found a similar pattern that both uh, mass hypertension and, and white coat hypertension have increased uh, cardiovascular risk but not as high as sustained hypertension Juan Pen, I know that uh, you published a study I think it was in 2018 in hypertension just discussing that home blood pressure the threshold might need to be lower than what, let, let's say we were using 140 over 90 for the clinic blood pressure, that the home blood pressure should p- probably be 130 over 80. For your patients in your clinic, is that something that you follow? I, and I think the, this was based on patients with out-of-office blood pressures above 130 over 80 had more, uh, uh, what was it, hypertension-mediated organ damage and cardiovascular mortality. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yes, when we use the older uh, 140 or 90 in the office, um, it, the study showed that uh, when uh, they use the target organ damage approach, or you can use several approaches to link up what does that look like at home. And so there are several approaches people use. Um, that is a regression approach, like the same person, what, what does it look like at home, correlated what it looked like in the clinic. The other approach would be like, if you look at, um, LV mass of people who have uh, this much of office blood pressure, what would look like in terms of correlation with the that level of uh, LV mass to the home blood pressure. But um, we, we did look at that in the, the Dallas Heart Study, and we when we used the 
Interestingly, when we used 130080 in the office, it actually correlated pretty well to 130080 at home. Mm. So the, the 14190 was correlated in the previous study with 135085. But if you use 130080, the lower it's it's not as proportional, like you can subtract five I and see. then it will you can subtract. So actually at the lower the lower the threshold goal, actually that is very little difference. It starts to kind of yeah. the curve start to diverge. Uh, and it looks uh-huh. like it's very similar to at, at home of 130080 as well. So so for Mr. Theo Z. Hyde, let's say he came into your clinic, his average blood pressure was this 142 over 94, and we need some more readings. So you'll tell him to go home and how how many how do you tell him to check his blood pressure at home? Let's say he has an automated cu- he buys an automated cuff that can take three readings. How often do you want him to check it before you're gonna make your treatment decision for him? So usually um uh, actually, there is a recent um, self guide HA guidelines in terms of self how to do a self BP monitoring, and actually, you can get pretty good information within one week worth of monitoring. So usually, uh, I, I tell my patient do two in the morning, and two in the evening for seven days, so you get about twenty eight readings. Uh, and again, after following five minute rest and you know monitor arm support, you know at the level of the heart, all that stuff, and um, uh, there's a recent data that's published uh, actually this year um, that show that that actually predict LV mass um, even stronger than a 24-hour blood pressure. Mm-hmm. I think it's just probably one uh, isolate study, but this is a U.S. study that, that look at this uh, in the same person. So you can, you can get pretty good information in terms of doing a careful reading for one week. And people, people always say, oh, I can't do it like this for every day the rest of my life. But well, you don't have to. <laughs> the nice thing is, you can get, you probably can do um, once a month and pick one week out of it uh, and do get the two in the morning, two in the evening. Paul and Stuart, I, I just wanted to poll you guys since we're all doing primary care. Uh, how often are you guys uh, getting ambulatory, like the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring versus just like what Juan Penn was saying about the two in the morning, two in the evening for a week and, and call you with the results? Um, Paul, do you, do you are you able to easily get the twenty four hour and then Stuart? No, no, okay. I've never successfully done it. It sounds wonderful, but I've I've only heard of it in theory. I've never actually I've never actually accomplished it. Okay. Yeah, it, as you know, in my Cashlack Super South, um, <laughs> we can get ambulatory the twenty four hour ambulatory blood pressure monitors pretty easily. Yeah. But you know, I kind of scratched my head as to saying um, how accurate is it at night when it's going off when the poor guy or gal is trying to sleep at night. And so um, I, I tend to rely more on the the home blood pressure monitoring, have them uh, drop off about a week or two, and then I, I'll review that in addition to evidence or absence of end organ damage to differentiate who I treat and who I don't. I actually, I'm really glad that you mentioned that, Stuart, because I actually had a question for Juan Penn about the nocturnal readings, because I, I some of what I'd heard is there's this sort of looking at the non-dippers and the possible prognostication for that. So I, I'm just, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about if there is specific relevance to the nighttime blood pressure readings as opposed to those that happen during the day when the patient's awake. Sure. So actually, actually I, I 
I actually wear 24 blood pressure myself because I do this, do clinical research. So I, I whatever <laughs> procedure I subject the patient to, I usually do it oh, myself first. That's that's Instead of, oh, I nice. did it, you know. I even have a... you're not a pulmonologist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did have a transesophageal echo done to me. Oh, again, yes, I, it's, I can tell, like, it was, oh, is it going to hurt? Like, I told, I, I did, I have it done. <laughs> so, so I can tell them, I actually have... Of course, at the beginning, it's a little bit annoying, but I was about to fall asleep. So I, I do believe that it's valid, and, and studies have shown the correlation between nocturnal blood pressure and, and, and cardiovascular events stronger than daytime and, and 24-hour blood pressure. I, I, I think it's a legitimate uh, and independent prognostic uh, indicator. Uh, what uh, I use it more often in, in older people, particular people who tend to have autostatic hypertension uh, from particularly from autonomic failure. They tend to have more supine hypertension. Uh, you know, some even have a reverse dipping, uh, higher blood pressure at night than during the day. Um, and so I tend to use that a little bit more and not only trying to help in terms of diagnosis and also looking at overall blood pressure control, but um, perhaps help with trying to time more dosing of blood pressure medication uh, for people with autonomic failure with predominantly supine hypertension. For example, people who have like diabetic autonomic neuropathy for 10 years and have like um, all kinds of organ damage and including you know, nephrosclerosis or, um, and, and in the same time, they might have CAD and a lot of things, uh, but they, they have terrible symptoms. We treat blood pressure aggressively during the day I try to, it helps me to convince the patient more and try to treat blood pressure more aggressively at nighttime. So you, you kind of anticipated my next question was, was going to be for, for your patients, is, is there a best time of day uh, for all comers or do you individualize it? Like if they're non-dippers, you might be more likely to give them blood pressure at meds at night, or can, can people just take it in the morning or is some better than none? Is there, I, this is a question that comes up fairly often when I'm precepting in clinic and for the residents, I, I'm just like, mm -hmm. well, let's just, if we can get them to take the med, let's, that's good. That's a win to start that we can fine tune from there. But how do you approach it? Sure. So, um, I, I agree with you. I think adherence is an issue. So I usually tell them that what's most convenient for them. I, I would tell them to use it first at that, at that time of the day and, and certain drug that we have very long half-life, actually you don't have to take it at bedtime to, to achieve greater reduction in blood pressure at bedtime. For example, called thalidone that uh, has been given in the morning, you actually can uh, have a greater blood pressure reduction at nighttime and because uh, what contributes to nocturnal hypertension is several things. Is, um, it could be salts, um, salt sensitivity, CKD, uh, sleep apnea. So you, you don't have to have you don't have to take, necessarily take the blood pressure medication at bedtime. Um, the only group of people that tend to concentrate more blood pressure medication at bedtime are people with autonomic failure, with reverse dipping. That's when I start to use shorter-acting drug, which will not linger around as much during the day, and I, I tell, tell them to take it at bedtime. Um, so for most general people outside those autonomic failure category, you choose... Uh, long-acting drug uh, it, to be consistent in uh, consistent taking at the same time of the day, I think is more important. And 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 if the mechanism of hypertension at night is soft sensitivity, I think having a diuretic without taking it at night probably it will work as well.
Hey audience, there are plenty of options when it comes to your next career move in medicine. But just like every patient is different, each physician forms their own personal definition of success. Whenever your next career move happens, you deserve a job search partner who considers who you are before looking for your next role. Provider Solutions and Development is a group of empathetic experts in career coaching who help physicians like you find the place they really want to be, and it starts by learning what matters most to you. Whatever you're ready for next, they'll help you find it with no quotas or commissions to get in the way. You can start talking with someone today or anytime by reaching out at psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. That's psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. All right, so let's let's get back to our case. So we have, as a reminder, the, the lovely Mr. Hyde, who sounds like he's making a really good faith effort to to make all the lifestyle changes. He's cut back on his alcohol intake. He's quit smoking. He's eating right. Um, but his blood pressure, nevertheless, is still elevated by whichever kind of guideline that you might go for. And we talked about sort of the diagnosis of blood pressure, of hypertension being made at different thresholds according to different guidelines. But I wonder, I'd like to hear specifically your approach to treating uh, what blood pressure targets you treat patients to. So for instance, in this patient who has known coronary artery disease, does that change the, the targets you would treat to? And sort of how do you think about what your blood pressure goals are for your patients? Yeah, so um, this will be definitely a high-risk patient. So I, I definitely would push for toward the 130 or 80 um, goal. Um, these are the study of including a sprint that show that the lower is the better. Be- before uh, I go there, I want to make sure that the, he or she doesn't have a comorbidity like um, autostatic hypotension that we're talking about, um, because keeping in mind that sprint trial exclude upfront people with standing systolic blood pressure less than 110. And that's why the autostatic hypertension is, is, is not as as uh, much of a problem because they already screened those people out. And uh, so that's one. And given him as an older adult, um, the, the ACCHA guidelines said that at least for older adults, you should have a, a chair decision-making to consider and very frail Older adults, like for example, they're in the nursing home or uh, dementia, who who really are more prone to have side effects, then you probably don't want to push it uh, that hard. But it doesn't sound like this is the case for 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 the the patient you presented. And he's a high risk patient, and he seems like um if he's capable of uh, he's still an active older adults uh, and and able to manage his medication, I definitely would try to to go for a lower goal in in his case. Yeah, he's still he's still he's cycling. This he's out there. He's living his best life. He's making uh, cauliflower rice, apparently, according to <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, he's really he's he's doing a he's doing a great job. So the the ish guidelines, the International Society for Hypertension guidelines, came out in 2020. The meds for the ish guidelines are the same as the the other guidelines, ACEs and ARBs, or calcium channel blockers, or diuretics. Those tend to be the first three classes. I, what I thought was interesting about the the ish guidelines is that they mention using a single uh, a single combination pill in a low dose as first line, and they specifically said ACE ARB plus a calcium channel blocker, um, or ACE or ARB plus a calcium channel blocker. I wonder what you do in your clinic um, if you're initiating blood pressure for someone with a, a pressure like like our gentleman in the 140 over 90 range. Um, do you do you use the combination pills, even when you're still titrating? Because I find that to be challenging. So the, usually the patient who comes to see me is already on a lot of drugs. Sure. So, they, they, <laughs> so they're on more than two. So um, 
I think for general uh, practice, I think it makes a lot of sense to, to use two in one combination. I, I think we just have to to get used to it. I think the uh, the, the experience that um, from Kaiser Permanente actually what part of their success in the program is to use to upfront two in one combination pill, um, Lacinopro HCT. They actually have um, only one strength. Actually, it's very interesting that they, they have only the 2025. They have only one strength. And they say that if you have mild hypertension, you get half a tap. If you have average, like say 10 millimeter above, they, wow. you get the full tap. If you have very high hypertension, you get two taps. And actually, they just uh, they show that starting with simple, a patient are less confused. And, and the patient does not, the patient doesn't know how many drugs are in the pill. They just say, I take one pill, feel great. If you have to take five pills, they feel really bad because they feel I'm really sick. Right. So the, the acceptance is great and there are less switching. Um, there's some data that published recently from Kaiser Permanente of Southern California that adopt this process and they found that the blood pressure control is better. There are less switching. So when, what do you mean by less switching? You, the physician themselves get called less because you get it right the first time and you get it down. <laughs> you don't have to keep writing another prescription, change another dose, get the patient confused. Um, and I don't know, you have the same experience. Sometimes when your patient get multiple prescriptions, then they feel a different pharmacies. The old one's still there and then they get renewed. It's very confusing. Patients forget where they picked up and the old one that we go up with right. the dose and they go, go back into the old dose and the new dose. They have taken both in the same time. So I think by I think there is an advantage uh, of two in one combination pill in terms of getting the blood pressure faster. The heart data it's a little bit less uh, lacking behind, but I think with with the we that is a solid data in terms of adherence. Uh, there's solid data in terms of getting the blood pressure down quicker. The the challenge and also the copay the copay of most of the two in one combo pill like ACE or R plus a diuretic is probably actually it's the same or it's cheaper than you order lisinopril and, and the HCTC right. separate. Because you pay two copays so, for the, the two cells. Yes. I, I yes. like that. I I guess, uh, and Stuart, this this probably the time. Now, Stu, everyone knows that Stuart is obsessed with chlorothalidone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Stuart, I'll let you you take it because that combination pill, uh, chlorothaladone combination pills tend to be a little harder to come by in my experience. There's only one that I know about, and it's made by Takeda Pharmaceuticals. It's uh, chlorothaladone and herbisartan. The reason why no, these no, are acylsartan. Azelsartan. Oh, Azelsartan. I got it wrong. <laughs> yes. Dang that's a super expensive. Actually, there are three. Oh, I know. That's, that's one with Atenolol and one, uh, one with Reserpine, which I can't right. find anymore. <laughs> and then one, this one with Azelsartan, which even um, the last person I prescribed is have a good health insurance. She's a lawyer. She could not afford it. Oh, my so, God. I believe I think, it was actually provided by Takeda Pharmaceuticals in the Sprint trial. The uh, right. chlorothaladone and azelsartan yeah. pill, right? So, so it's it's a challenge. This you cannot use a combo pill with chlorothaladone essentially. That's, that's there, the because it's such a long half life. Uh, yeah, and why would they put a tenolol in with it? Because that's not one we're using too much anymore for blood <sighs> pressure specific. Not not for that, blood maybe pressure. Maybe that's why they're anyway. looking for a niche. Yeah. So, um, one pen. Are there other combination pills that uh, the let's say for some reason uh, somebody doesn't want it? We don't want to use a diuretic, or someone has an ACE. You know, they they have a cough with that medicine. 
Are there other combination pills that that you can think of that our audience might want to think of as a first line regimen for patients? Well, that's of course, obviously there's an ARB and calcium channel blocker combination. The problem is those are still relatively expensive. Um, mm-hmm. Even in, some of them become generic, uh, but I think the cost is still more than a four dollar Walmart. Um, the, I, I would also say, um, in case it's been brought up, the the accomplished trial, which was published a while back, showed that the combo is benazepril plus amylodipine is better than benazepril plus hydrochlorothiazide in um, lowering uh, cardiovascular events in high-risk hypertension. Uh, that's the only one trial that's um, showed superiority of one com- combination over the other. Uh, the benazepril CCB is also now generic as well, but unfortunately, it's still a little bit a little bit not super. It's not as bad as cortisolidone, acylsartan, but it's still a little bit more than more expensive than the ACE or R plus diuretic, and I don't understand why. Someone, yeah, I, even a generic, I, I really don't understand. Right. Why. Okay. So if we have to, um, if for whatever reason the lisinopril HCTZ, we don't think it's going to work for our patient, then we could still do two two medications in combination. Is that is that often your go to? Um, Try to if you if you can't prescribe a single pill, you'll you'll prescribe two medicines in combination at a lower dose rather than start one medicine and then go up to the max dose and then start the next medicine and go up to the max dose. Yes, yeah, so that that's uh, the meta analysis that have shown that using the uh, half dose of two different drug from different class, you get much bang for the buck. Then uh, you know when people think that you know double the dose will, right. will be uh, you get the same amount, but actually you get the plateau. Any kind of pharmacokinetic data, uh, kinetic data will show that those plateau responds to the higher dose. And yeah, so if- I'm not, uh, and what you get the side effects more, right. not not the blood pressure reduction. I was going to ask, yeah. So with the doubling of the the HCTZ dose to where you're at the 50 milligrams of that, like I always get squirrely at that particular dose because it doesn't seem to give me much benefit, but does seem to give me plenty of hypokalemia. Do you see much more of that when you when you're at those the far ends of the dosing threshold? From which dose to which dose? So if you, I think you said doubling up on the pill, so I guess it would be forty lisinopril and fifty of um, HCTZ, and that the fifty of the HCTZ always makes me a little bit nervous in isolation. I guess maybe combined with the ACE, it's not so bad. But do you see hypokalemia with that more frequently? Is that something we should be more mindful of when prescribing? No, I agree with you. That you get more. That's that's approach that Kaiser Permanente use uh, for the simple. From simplicity of the uh, protocol, I, I personally don't use it uh, at that dose myself, um, and, um, yeah. and that's the same problem with cortisolidone at a dose more than twenty-five milligrams. You get b- uh, much more hypokalemia. So, Juan Pen, I think w- the, where we wanted to uh, change this case a little bit now would be for uh, for our patient here, Mister Mister Hyde. Let's say that we put him on this. We're, we're we're using the Kaiser Permanente method, so we put him on uh, a half. His blood pressure is not uh, not that elevated, so we put him on just this 20, uh, 20 of lisinopril with twenty five of HCTZ combo pill. And when we check his labs in like a week or two, we find out that he's hypokalemic with a potassium of let's say three. Uh, what does that make you think of? Um, what does that make you think of for this patient? And let's say he's a little bit more hypertensive this time for whatever reason. Let's say he's still, he's in the 150s over 90s now and his home blood pressure logs in that range. Um, 
When do you start to think about things like secondary hypertension, hyperaldosteronism? Is that common and do we miss it? Yes. Yeah, so I, no, I think that's a great thought. That's what definitely I would look into. Um, so the, of course, hydrocortisone could cause hypokalemia, but it's unusual when you use it as a combination form, particularly in the, to go to that low range. Um, so I, I would definitely look, look into that, um, particularly for if the patient's you know, one particular the patient wants to go through to the workup. If they say, I don't want to know anything about this, I just want the treatment, then of course, then I would look into it. So I, I um, uh, the prevalence of primary although is very high. Um, so in people who, um, recent data show that in, in even in the mild stage one hypertension, you can find up to 10% of, of the patient uh, in among stage two or resistant yeah. hypertension, 20, 25%. So I definitely... Um, I mean, of course, on two drugs, if blood pressure is still, this is not resistant hypertension, but I think it will give me, push me toward um, doing the workup on, on this particular patient. Right. So resistant hypertension, patients on the three classes I mentioned, the ACE ARB, calcium channel blocker, diuretic at good doses, and they're still not controlled, that, that would meet for resistant hypertension, right? And you would think about a secondary hypertension workup for these folks. Um, and this always comes up before. Previous guests have told us that they will just test the person, uh, they'll test an aldosterone and a renin, even if the person's already on blood pressure meds, they don't mess around with holding all the medications. What's your practice when it comes to that, sending that lab? I, I agree with that. Um, I think that for screening tests, um, you don't need to stop the ACE-OP diuretics and even mineral corticoid receptor antagonists. Um, uh, what, what we would look for is... Um, if you still have low low suppressed renin despite being on diuretic ACR or MRA, um, and uh, that really raises a red flag. I'm I'm not particularly necessarily look for outdoor unless it's if it's zero, then it might change my mind. But but if it's um, that's a number. But if there's renin, I'm looking for more for renin. If the renin is suppressed, it's really kind of ring a red flag. It should not be suppressed. Um, so you're you're not and, looking at the ratio. I don't. I usually don't look at a ratio because it could be a lot misleading. Yeah. Um, because oftentimes some lab report PRA a point two. So if you have, if you have a PRA point two and your your outdoor can be two and you get a ratio of ten, then your outdoor of two is nothing. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think uh, we also when we talked about this previously, I think depending on which renin assay you have. The, the units could be different. So you have to just look at the, the units and what the, what the range is to, to check if it's suppressed. All right. So you, you mentioned that mineral, even if they're on a mineralocorticoid, so if they're on a spironolactone, you could still, uh, if, they're, if they're on spironolactone, you could still test, you mentioned. For patients with resistant hypertension, if we were to change this case again and say, Mr. Hyde, he actually his blood pressure has been like 150s, 160s, despite the fact that he's now on three drugs. Is is your next choice usually spironolactone as long as the person isn't like hyperkalemic or has like advanced CKD? Do you did you usually is that has that become your fourth line blood pressure medicine now? Um, I would say MRA. I think for 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 women, I wouldn't usually I wouldn't blink on giving someone spironolactone. For men, I think. You know, particularly in 40s, 50s, um, beware of gynecomastia, anti-androgenic side effects. Um, if you tell them that, you know, it could cause all this gynecomastia to a 40-year-old man, I, I think most 40-year-old men was like, no, I don't want to take that. Uh, so 
I would first before I put them on, did I, I usually try to do a workup uh, as we talked about a primary aldosteronism. If it didn't show it, um, the um, I, I would also say that that's for the screening test that you don't have to stop. But once you you want to do confirmatory tests like also oral salt loading and saline, I usually stop the interfering drugs. Um, so just to clarify those. But anyway, for in terms of MRA, uh, people. We should be taking a little bit of pause because hypertension is a lifelong drug treatment. And people are trying to think about um, giving spironolactone in young men. If we give it to heart failure, people, we don't blink, of course, because in heart failure and rouse, it improves survival. That's usually not a question. But for treating, treatment of hypertension in young men, uh, you, this had to come up. And I usually try to use a plurinone first because it, it had less antiandrogenic side effects. The plum epilinone is the cost, uh, even a generic, it's still a little bit costly. And um, it's usually a twice a day drug uh, for hypertension. Uh, it's not it's not as strong as spironolactone. And um, it usually you, you need higher dose than uh, on a milligram to milligram basis. You need a higher dose than aldactone or spironolactone. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are you ever but using... yes, that will be the full one. Yeah. And Go what ahead. about... Amiloride or doxazosin, terazosin, hydralazine, things like that. Do you ever reach for those? Sure. Yes. Um, the um, so the fifth or the sixth one. That's when I started to think about adding those kind of things. Or particular someone who have you cannot use MRA because of um, severe renal dysfunction or history of hypokalemia. Um, so I would and by the the fourth drug. Then if we can't use that, I would think about either. I would look at the heart rate as well. So, you know, if the heart rate is on the low side and you can't really give a beta blocker, then I'm, I'm thinking about something like a vasodilator, then an alpha blocker would be the fourth or the fifth okay. drug. On the other hand, if the heart rate is it's already fast, uh, I usually, use, using vasodilator, they usually will have more, potentially more palpitation side effects or tachycardia side effects. Then I might think about more, uh, like, you know, I'll combine alpha, beta blocker, like covetalol, betalol, those kind of things, depending on other comorbidity as well. Paul and Stuart, any last minute questions uh, before we get some take-home points here? I, I think I have, I have one instance I want to ask about, and we can we can keep this or not. So a question, a patient that I have questions about is someone who has isolated systolic hypertension. I feel like those are patients, especially your older patients, as their diastolic pressure starts dipping down, but their systolic pressure keeps creeping up and their pulse pressure widens. We tend to get a little bit squeamish about pushing the antihypertensives because we worry they're going to syncopize or we're worried that we're going to make their diastolic pressure drop to some level that's not, not safe. I'm wondering if you have a specific approach to that type of patient or how you think about managing their blood pressure for someone who has isolated systolic hypertension. Sure, sure. Um... Yes, so that's always a challenge, particularly people with wide pulse pressure. I try to avoid using beta blocker and those kind of patients um, because people who had isolated systolic hypertension, if you slow the heart rate down, they usually, they just, I'm assuming in a setting of normal LV function, what when you slow the heart rate down, you, your stroke volume is going to go up. And what that's going to do is it's going to even drive the systolic blood pressure to go up because of the pathophysiology in those folks are a stiff, stiffening of aorta. So when you have more stroke volume, your systolic pressures go way up more and it kind of de- de- um, negate all other de- drugs. Um, you know, in the, the sprint trial, at least, show that the lowering bl- diastolic blood pressure, is even in the 
lowest quintile uh, sprint is about less than 60, 68, 65 millimeter mercury, those people derive as much benefit in intensive blood pressure lowering, trying to get the systolic below 120 as much as other other group. That's i.e. there there there's no interaction in which the the fear of J curve like of lowering diastolic blood pressure is too much. Uh, but of course, up to a point. Um, you know, I think sometimes I see a patient in in intensive care and they have an AI and plus. Looks in eighty or ninety year old with diastolic of forty when they have a Q coronary syndrome, I you know I'm not you know, I'm not I'm not going wild trying to lower that systolic to you know one less than one twenty in that setting a Q coronary syndrome because I want to perfuse coronary artery and those kind of setting. Yes, but in the chronic setting, I think it's it, I'm not as concerned. Juan Pen, can we ask you for some take home points? If there was two or three things that the you really wanted the audience to remember, what would those be? Yes, so uh, try to uh, first find, and we haven't talked as much as um, non-pharmacologic intervention. Uh, we try to look at uh, control sodium intake. Actually, it it's, uh, it's very important in resistant hypertension. It's it's as good as one drug. Indeed, we can try to get the sodium intake down to less than fifteen hundred milligrams a day, and uh, usually. It's not just by adding salt in the food, avoiding adding salt in the food alone is not going to do it because it's loaded in our you know, processed mm-hmm. food. So I usually tell them to to look at sodium per serving in the food or load, read the food label. Not, um, so that's that's one point. And studies show that you can get more than 10 millimeter mercury if you can try to get sodium intake low and resistant hypertension. The... Uh, other part would be for work of primary aldosteronism that you you elude. I think that we should not um, many people not doing the workup because uh, we, my residents say all the time like, well, that this patient doesn't have hypokalemia. I was like, that's by itself. It doesn't mean that the patient doesn't have it because um, in people who had bilateral hyperplasia or bilateral PA, only fifty percent have hypokalemia, and if you have adenoma. You know, 16%, 16-17% people may, may not have hypokalemia. Low potassium, depending on how much potassium you, you eat. And, and just not having hypokalemia doesn't mean that the patient doesn't have primary aldosteronism. So that should not prevent someone to to not look for it. And um, I think that the um, spending time talking to the patient how to measure blood pressure at home accurately, I think would save us a lot of Headaches, and um, I also would like to um, let you all know that I'm, in case you're not aware, the uh, CMS just early early part of last year had a billing code for primary care physician to be able to bill the patient for the home read to uh, interpret the home reading and make a medication adjustment. Of course, it's not going to you know, make anyone rich or anything like that, but <laughs> it really it will facilitate blood pressure control that you can, uh, you can interpret um, the monitoring there. And if you can make a report, make adjustment based on that, you can actually build uh, for the, those kind of things. Um, and that can get the patient to the goal faster and waiting than waiting every three months appointment and do something about it. And you'll get your blood pressure cuffs from validatebp.org. Dot all. Yes. yes. All right. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great place mm-hmm. to end. Thank you so much, Juan Pen. Thank you.
This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, interview the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, both Deborah Gorth and Isabel Valdez, and to our social media team, Beth Garps Garptelli on Twitter, Maddie Maddog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Gar oh, <laughs> Tima Karganov on our website, and Chris the Chumanchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. I think you're my only friend or maybe the only person I know that says Dag Nabbit uh, on the regular, which I which I enjoy. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, a reminder to the audience that they can get CME credit for this episode for free through VCU Health Continuing Education by visiting curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I would be remiss if I did not thank the amazing Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are hearing behind us, and also to Claire Morgan of Not Only for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>